Hi everybody, you're listening to The Rock Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you're of legal age where you live, then turn off now. This podcast is about rock bondage. Rock bondage is edge play with inherent risk, and we strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to episode zero before attempting it. Find her at the top of our FetLife page, Rock Podcast No Space. Fox is a rigger and Maya is a bottom. We're rope partners. We've been practicing together for a couple of years now, and we're very excited to share our passion for rope with you from our beautiful home in Thailand. Yes, we are. And today we're very pleased to have an interview with EM, who, while interested in many aspects of BDSM, is currently focused on Japanese-inspired rope bondage and play involving whips. So I'm going to quote his own words to describe him further. As an avid fan of Japanese-inspired rope bondage, the ability to control, mold, or contort the form of a beautiful woman has always drawn me. As an avid sadist, the ability to strike, welt, and bruise the female form has also always drawn me. The subtext behind both of these is not simple sadism for sadism's sake, however. Being rendered helpless or voluntarily submitting to pain, those are the ultimate expressions of trust and submission. Submission is my great lust when it comes to play, getting inside her head and exploring a scene in a mental play space as opposed to a shallowly physical one. I seek depth, vulnerability, and sincerity from my partner when I play. I like it. So, <laughs> I thought you would. So here at the Rock Podcast, we're very interested to talk to Ian about sadism and love um, as someone who's a very well-respected, uh, risk-aware edge player in the community. All right. Well, Ian, it's really great to have you with us today. Uh, so to kick us off, set the scene for us a bit. Tell us how you first got interested in rope. Uh, I would have to say that it was more a byproduct of an interest in bondage at a young enough age that uh, I didn't yet have a credit card or anything like that. My parents were, you know, of course, involved in all the finances that I had access to. So rope was about the only thing that was accessible, uh, you know, when you're a young high school aged person wanting to play with somebody mm-hmm. uh, that require you to answer some very awkward questions from your parents about why there's a credit card change from the stockroom or Mr. S or something like that. Um, so it wasn't inherently rope. Uh, and I would say, honestly, it still isn't inherently rope. Um, rope is not my biggest, greatest, truest love. It is just the most versatile tool that I have at hand to put somebody in a particular position that might I might dream up very quickly. And then, of course, very easy to tie someone there if you've gotten truly proficient with it. Uh, whereas if you're going to build some steel erector set with some chains and some cuffs and all that to get them in that position, it's a considerable engineering feat. <laughs> yeah, okay, I can see uh, that. I do lo- yes, I, I do love uh, rope for its versatility uh, and for its you know ability to put somebody in a million different places, a million different headspaces, with pretty much no warning or preparation. If it strikes your fancy and you have enough rope in you and you have enough experience, you can... Probably get the person there. Uh, so if so, you if you've got only space to bring one toy to a, to a party, then rope is a good choice because you can do so much with it. Oh no! To be perfectly honest, if I got room to bring one spa- one toy, it would be some kind of whip. Yeah, <laughs> I can always pin them down when I hurt them. Uh, that makes sense. I yes, I, I teach a lot of rope. I do a lot of rope. My photography features a lot of rope. But I would say that I am not, first and foremost, a rope person. 
Well, However, yeah, it's interesting because we get a lot of perspective from very rope-focused persons on these podcasts, obviously, but I think it's quite good to hear from someone who uses rope as part of something bigger also. Yes, yes. I will do scenes involving just rope. However, they are not the norm. Cool. Uh, and I think cool. that separates me from a lot of the, uh, I guess you would call more prolifically traveled uh, rope instructors, uh, particularly in the United States, because... For most of them, they have fallen in love with Japanese bondage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I very much enjoy it. However, in my private play outside of photography, outside of a dungeon, outside of classes, I use duct tape and zip ties as much as I use jute. Hmm. Uh, w would you say you still have a strong Japanese influence, though? Ooh, that's a tough one. Yes and no. Um, I find the, the tying in the Japanese style... Uh, the big thing for me is that um, you don't want to hit somebody a few times with something and then stop mm -hmm. and then come back and hit them a few times with something else and then stop. Uh, you want a scene to kind of flow, whether it's uh, playing together intimately in the bedroom, whether it's playing together very sadistically in a dungeon, or whether it's rope. You want everything to have a flow and that's the primary attraction of the Japanese style to me, is the fact that I can bind their body here, there, everywhere, uh, and make the entire scene, or make the entire sequence uh, a process that builds slowly and intensely to the point where by the time you're finished tying, uh, well, you're never really finished tying. You're untying and you move it over here, you retie and you move someone over there. Um, and hopefully, in my case, hurting them all along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't do impact scenes, I don't do rope scenes, I do BDSM scenes, and they almost always involve the non-stop application of hands and feet and whips and canes and knives and rope the whole way through. Okay, very okay. interesting. So, so how did you first connect sadism and rope? So was that something that you did right from the start as well? I would have to say yes and then backed off from it and brought it back. Um, I think all of us know somebody who identifies as a sadistic rigor simply because of a deficiency in skill. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they don't know how to tie rope that doesn't hurt, so they just claim that they're safe. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I, in my opinion, to be a proficient sadist with rope, you need to be able to tie everything that you're doing in that scene not so much painlessly, because, I mean, hanging upside down from a single ankle <laughs> or a momo is going to be discomforting. It is not going to be comfortable. But it's, you should know how to tie it properly, and I don't want to say sensually, but with as even tension and weight distribution and all that is possible to make it comfortable and sustainable, then come back and intentionally fuck it up to make it stop. Okay, interesting. What's one of the, um, the earliest scenes you can remember doing that involved uh, sadism and rope? What kind of uh, sticks would, out for you? Actually, I'd have to say the very first time I ever played in public. Uh, it was at the dungeon here in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is that the club was completely packed that night. Uh, my girl and I happened to go for the very first time on the biggest event of the year, the biggest weekend of the year. So there were a hundred and something people in the room. And all I did was I got some crappy uh, cotton clothesline out of my bag because that's what I was tying with. Done. Um, had never seen Japanese rope at this point in 2010, and and that was about to change very quickly. But uh, <laughs> thank you, Fat Life. 
But so I got, you know, crappy nylon rope out of my bag and proceeded to, they had this big chain spider web on the wall. And I just proceeded to tie her to its spread eagle and, like, you know, tie a little crappy chest harness and strap her chest up this way and tie a thigh cuff on each leg and pull them out this way. So she was completely immobilized, spread eagle. And, you know, riding crops and, you know, clover clamps, all your basic stuff that, you know, you use when you're getting started and you're becoming proficient. Uh, but I turned around and everybody had stopped to watch. And this is a room where there's like a, well, there's a guy hanging upside down from his ankles, and there's someone over here doing this crazy whip thing, and I had never even, like, touched a whip yet. Uh, and everybody was stopping and watching the two new people. And, of course, in my head, I'm going, am I, am I fucking up? What am I, what, am I <laughs> yeah, doing wrong? Yeah, there could I, be one, one of several reasons why they were watching, right? Well, I know exactly what it was. It took me about three weeks before someone at the club mentioned, they came back and they're like, you were the couple that did the rope scene. I and so was rope you to them? Yeah, I used rope at all. I had rope with me. Uh, they hadn't seen anybody tied out at that club in probably five or six months. Okay. Okay, interesting. Yes, interesting. it was all leather cuffs and snap links and padlocks and chains and duct tape and saran wrap and everything else you can dream of under the sun. But nobody was proficient in tying in the state of Tennessee, as far as I know, it, in 2010. And do, did that um, influence the scene there? Because sometimes when one person brings in a new activity, then... Well, it wasn't in... Oh, in the, in, in the Memphis area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, within about two years, yes, because I pretty much then went on a tear. Like, I, I have always used rope in all my scenes ever since, you know, in public, in private play. Uh, so that was 2010. I was age 30. Um, so for, for at least 12 years prior to that, I would say, um, I was tying at home in the bedroom with rope from Home Depot and hadn't seen Japanese stuff yet. So I was kind of reverse engineering like Western ties you'd see on like, you know, bedroombondage.com or something like that. That's even a website. Um, and, uh, but I was using rope and, you know, hog ties and spread eagles and chest harnesses and arm binders and all that stuff in my private play, uh, with, with, you know, people I played with, but, it was all just things I puzzled out from the internet, and luckily I didn't hurt anybody. Um, and and then we went to the club in Memphis, and they mentioned that, you know, they did mention, it was like, oh, we haven't seen anybody tie in months. We've got this one guy, I forget his name, I think it was Chris or something, uh, and he'll come sometimes and suspend people, and it's really, really cool, and everybody kind of like lines up to watch, but he comes maybe once a year. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's cool, but I've always used rope, so... I want to find out more about rope. And within a couple months, uh, my partner and I at the time found out about ShibariCon, and I just decided we're going to go. Mm, okay, okay. So yeah, ShibariCon 2011 was the first time I saw a Japanese rope. That uh, was the first year Wicked Dave and Clover had come to the United States. Mm. And I saw him tie her, and I had never seen rope move 10% that speed. Mm. And... And also at the same time that weekend, my partner had to drag me to Dave and Clover's connection class. And that was the first time I realized that you can do more with rope than tie somebody up and then begin the scene. You can make <laughs> the team and untie. Okay, okay. Um, so kind of moving to the sadism piece even more. Rope, rope and whips are obviously very physical instruments. Um, yes. And one of the things you talk about is using them to get to a mental play space, that the mental play space is where you're trying to go. So can you just talk okay. a bit about how this happens and what it means? Certainly. Good question. Um, 
for me, I think a lot of people get lost in rope because they fall in love with the rope and not with tying their partner. Um, you eventually kind of figured out somewhere along the way with rope. Uh, you have that first scene that kind of imprints on most of us the first time it happens where you have a really deep mental connection. You could be doing a tie or a whip scene or a flogging scene or whatever that you've done ten times before, but for whatever reason you have this amazing mental connection with your partner and the two of you could play all night. You only stop because you're physically exhausted. Mm. Uh, and I think we've all had something like that happen, whether it's sadistic or sensual or sexual or what have you, um, whatever it is that you're into, however you're playing at the time, you kind of have that imprint and you realize that there's a mental component to this uh, and hopefully at some point you figure out that that mental component, the mental aspect, playing where you reach a very strong emotional and mental connection with your partner, that's the actual point of BDSM. In my opinion, that's the entire point. And I know there are people who don't believe that, who never really go there, uh, and in my opinion, eh, well, they're wrong. <laughs> and how, how would you like... describe the feelings in that? So I think for, for the people who are wrong, I suspect they don't understand what no. it means, emotional and mental place. So, so talk a bit more about what that actually looks like or means or feels like. Well, and I'm not going to say, of course, uh, when I say they're wrong, I want everyone to understand that I'm very sarcastic. Um, and uh, I'm but, British, so that's fine. <laughs> yes, yes. A dry, abrasive sense of humor goes well with you, right? Um, however, um, I don't know that I can answer that question precisely because... That's like asking somebody, you know, they, they walk up to a beautiful, like, landscape. They're looking over, uh, you know, this mountainside view, and there's a cottage and there's a lake and everywhere. And you ask them, like, what they feel. Or how am I supposed to feel when I look at this? Uh, and everybody's going to feel something a little bit different. Hey, guys. This is Fox coming in for a short break. We really love making this rope podcast and sharing it with you. Sadly, hosting a podcast isn't free. Far from it, actually. So if you like this podcast and you want to support us, you can do so at ropepodcast.com. You'll find ways to buy rope stuff so that we get a cut from your purchases, and also ways to donate to us directly. And if you can't afford to do that, that's okay too. Just enjoy the podcast. Now back to our normal programming. Sure, um, and so you can ex share from your subjective experience for yeah. sure. Yes, and I'm trying to think of... Uh, it's, it, but it, again, it's like I'm looking at this landscape and someone's asking me what I feel when I go there. I'm trying to think of the correct words to use. Um, There's no way it was wrong. I'm a psychologist in day-to-day -day life. It's very annoying for people. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind. I do not mind. Uh, I like probing questions like this because when you answer them, you find out more about yourself than you knew before. Hmm. Of course, it's your entire point as a psychologist to, to ask these penetrating questions and get people to self-discover. Um, but I would say um, the biggest uh, what I am typically after when I play is submission and that's that's one of the heaviest components to me uh, and it's it doesn't sh it doesn't show a lot, it doesn't mean a lot uh, to me and to the people I tend to play with uh, what what submission comes down to a gesture of trust and a willingness to sacrifice your own pleasure in order to give pleasure to somebody else. I would say that's a pretty good component. Um, and so 
trying to go on a journey where you get to a point where they're offering you that much trust and vulnerability and respect and what have you. Um, in my opinion, somebody who comes to you and just throws it at your feet right up front, that's not all that engaging. It can be. I don't know. It just depends. Uh, particularly if you've played them before and you've built that relationship. But the process of earning that is what's fascinating to me. Um, so do you mean you prefer someone with some level of resistance and then having to break down that resistance? I, I wouldn't say that. Um, although that can be a great deal of fun, don't get me wrong, particularly for a sadist. I do, I do, that, I do that often. But it doesn't have to be resistance. Um, however, no, nobody, we, we, we all wear a little bit of mask, or we all wear a fairly large mask in our everyday life, and we take most of that off uh, when we come to play behind closed doors in the bedroom with our partner. Uh, we're much more real, we're much more us, we're much more vulnerable, we're much more open. But there's still a little bit there, um, particularly for those of us who like playing with heavy degradation, humiliation, and objectification. Um, uh, somebody who wants to be heavily degraded and objectified uh, tends to be the kind of person that attracts me the most strongly. And so it kind of, you kind of begin taking somebody who probably began today or arrived to play, the place place in a very physically beautiful state and trying to push them into a, a place where they feel wonderfully ugly but still accepted and actually embraced because of the mm. ugliness. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I want to strip away all the layers, all of the walls, uh, and get to a point where they're completely laid bare and vulnerable and they've let me completely inside. And they... Uh, and, basically feel completely stripped bare and like they have no secrets and completely exposed and they're probably crying at this point. I very much hope so. Because <laughs> um, they deserve that catharsis. Yeah, they deserve that catharsis. That, mm. that cathartic release that comes with the tears done the correct way in a heavy, heavy, horrible scene is one of my favorite moments. Um, and that's when play really begins to me. The, the tears are where, okay, we've gotten to where we want to really start to lay a foundation. Now it's time to go. Um, a lot of people stop when the tears come out. Mm, they do. It, we, we've gotten to the really sexy emotional release. Okay, now we can stop. Uh, in my opinion, that's where like a really heavily mentally sadistic or uh, degrading or humiliating scene, really the rubber has hit, you know, you've really hit the ground running and you're off to the races. Um, and, the, I mean, the big thing there is, to, like I said, to me is, them to have all of the things, all of the hidden, ugly little aspects of their psyche and their uh, confidence and their self-image laid bare, uh, and for you to actually embrace them for those things. So where do you usually go from here when the person has started crying? You're saying that's not where you stop the scene, that's kind of like where you begin in earnest. What do you do from that point? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, I think one of the things that... Uh, separates people who play like with a lot of mental uh, aspects to their to their scenes. I, I think one of the things that um, I can say for certain is always the case is I never ended up where I was planning to go. Mm. In a really in a really, really good rope scene, if you think about it the same way, most of the scenes that you've had that you two would probably describe as amazing you might have had in your head, either as a couple or just the top without the bottom's knowledge, um, you probably had in mind, this is kind of what the scene's going to look like, and it's going to end up over here. Like, it's going to end up uh, in a suspension from a hip harness, and this 
beautiful background that I'll take a photo or two. Uh, but where you end up is you never left the floor. And, or you ended up, you know, maybe you went to a totally different suspension position, but for me, as in rope, oftentimes I find I never even got off the ground. And, uh, and things just built, and they got really intense, they got really amazing, and you're just focusing on their, their sensations. Uh, and Barkus, I like his phrase, the interview, you know, like a bondage interview. Uh, you interrogate your, you, you, you ask them a question, as he calls it with rope. I would call it interrogating, because I think in sadistic terms. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you, you pose a one query, and you're going to get a little response. You, know, you wrap the rope tightly around the neck, and you tighten it just a little bit. And they sink into it, or they get a little bit scared, or they have no reaction. or Something's going to happen, and that's going to steer what you do next. Uh, and by the time you get through this interview, as Barkus calls it, and you've asked them a series of 40 questions, uh, as a psychologist, Maya, you would be aware, you know, you never really know where that conversation's going to end up when, you're, mm. when uh, a patient walks through the door for the first time. Uh, and in my opinion, a good rope scene, a good impact scene, a good, like, really heavy, mentally degrading scene involving somebody chained to the toilet in the, uh, the bathroom for a few hours with a light shine on them, interrogation style, where you repeatedly come in occasionally and do horrible things to them, um, or literally interrogate them verbally. Uh, any kind of really, really intense scene is going to end up being successful because at some point you realize that what you had planned doesn't suit the situation emotionally or physically or mentally uh, or in some aspect. This needs to go somewhere other than where you planned because something amazing is happening and you kind of want to follow that fork in the road and venture out into the woods instead of staying out here on the highway. So what I'm hearing you say is that you want to A, listen to your partner and B, be flexible and not stick to a railroad of a plan of what you want this thing to be. Yes, yes. I would I would say that very heavily. Um, I tend to have a plan, or two or three plans, or maybe just I want to do something that involves them zip tied to a chair, or I want to do a scene involving a couple of fudo momos on the floor with some heavy buff, or whatever it is that you have in your head uh, that suits the partner you're playing with. Uh, I want to start there and. Just kind of, at most, I want to have a couple of waypoints. I would say, like, a good analogy, I might have a storyboard. You know, at some point, I know I want to do this, like, this thing with a neck. And I want to end up on the floor using some clover clamps or candle backs or just untying on the floor and with her in my arms, whatever. I might have these two or three points in the scene, whether I'm tying rope or throwing whips or doing the things we've been discussing that are more dark and uh, depraved, wonderfully beautifully depraved. Uh, but in any case, yes, uh, the willingness to just pay attention to how your partner's reacting and adjust to that, accommodate that, and explore that uh, is what's going to lend to a, a scene that has a lot of really engaging emotional components, in my opinion. Okay, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So we've covered quite well the psychological and interpersonal aspect of it. On a more practical standpoint... You tend to be associated with more um, riskier play, and people on FET can sometimes be a bit judgy of that. Uh, <laughs> what bit. what would you say is the level of risk of the play you do, and how do you manage potential injuries if you've had them, and incidents, and so on? Oh, that's a tough one. Okay, for example, uh, 
for most people who primarily do rope, and they primarily do it at uh, what I would call more of like a community or club level, mm -hmm. uh, where they don't really venture in private beyond the things you would see like a major rope convention, uh, if they were to have a partner pass out in the rope, that would be a very big deal, and that would cause a very elevated heart rate on the part of the top. Uh, they might physically keep their cool on the outside, but this is a very big, very unusual event. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there was probably a six-month period where almost every single person I played with was choked unconscious at some point, either with my hands or with rope or by some other means. I would say that's atypical. <laughs> yeah. But, however, um, I can say with confidence right now that when somebody passes out and I'm playing with them, my heart rate, it stays the exact same. Like my pulse is the exact same while they're out as it was before they went out and when they come back. It doesn't excite me anymore. I've... Re I've figured out, and of course, over time, the first time I choked somebody out uh, was in the presence of somebody who was very experienced in jujitsu and had done a lot of blood chokes mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, and I've talked to various medical professionals. In fact, I have a, uh, a doctor that I like to play with who very much enjoys the way that I choke her out. Um, and I've got a lot of good medical information from you know nurses and doctors along the way. Uh, I've found that nurses in particular tend to be very, very knowledgeable. And very very kinky. <laughs> I we've I've never met a, I've never been to a community that had a shortage of nurses who were in the scene, either as sadists or dominants or submissives or what have you. Um, and uh, I I love any chance I get to talk to medical professionals. I have a uh, I have a surgeon that I've given rope lessons to a couple of times, who's a wonderful resource to be able to bounce things off of. Um, so I do a lot of due diligence. I do a lot of homework and research, and more importantly. Um, uh, I, like, for example, with breath with choking, like I said, the very first time I choked somebody out, they were out for maybe, like, a second. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was very, very cautious. I was very, very nervous. I was very this and the other. And it was in the presence of this other individual I mentioned. And from there, just over time, um, became more comfortable with that. I've become very comfortable cutting somebody, using uh, sutures on them. I've become very, very comfortable doing things that you're uh, a lot of people who would be, I don't want to say like mainstream BDSM players, because there's a lot of people who play very heavily in the mainstream, but people who would be more, uh, don't venture beyond uh, the mildest risk envelope, let's say that, because everybody has their own risk profile in every facet of kink. You know, some might be very comfortable with cutting and scarification, but very gun shy about uh, doing any kind of waterboarding or breath play or choking. Or vice versa. They might love breath play and they might be freaked out of the idea of cutting skin. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, or they'll hang someone upside down, 30 feet above concrete with rope and not blink <laughs> uh, But they uh, freak out of the idea of you know, actually choking somebody out with their hands. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, rope suspension is one of the riskier things you can do in King. I would much rather choke somebody out than uh, uh, I would agree. suspend them with a worn kit of rope. Hey, dear listeners, our interview with EM was so good that we just couldn't stop ourselves and we went quite over the time that would be reasonable for a single episode. So if you like this interview with EM as much as we did, you're going to be able to listen to the rest of it in the upcoming episode. Because honestly, it was worth it. Um, in the meantime, if you like this podcast and you would like to support us, you can find a number of ways to do that on ropepodcast.com and also if you want to do something for us that doesn't cost any money and will honestly just take you a couple of minutes we would really appreciate it if 
you would go on iTunes and give us a rating there. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying.